But of course, these apologists never tell us the rest of Indian lore. They don't tell us about the lore all the way from the Umatilla up, along, up around where Kennewick Man was found, down through Nevada, down across into the plains amongst the various Sioux tribes, down into Florida. They don't tell you the other part of Indian oral tradition, which is, in its different variations, there was an ancient people here before us. They were tall, and they had light skin, and they had red hair, or they had blonde hair, and we killed them. They don't tell you that part. And yet it seems to me, if we're going to pay attention to one part of Indian oral tradition, we really ought to pay attention to the other part as well. But of course, that's rather unpopular, and you will not find that in the Sunday supplements to your newspapers. In addition to artifacts and morphology and Indian lore, we have as well genetics. There's a particular genetic marker which scientists call haploid X. It has nothing to do with American history X, nothing to do with Malcolm X. It's, this is haploid X, okay? Now, haploid X is a particular genetic marker which is found in some of the very ancient American remains some of Kennewick Mann's contemporaries. It is very rarely found in modern American Indian populations. It is found in living European populations. As of the latest writing, it has never been found in East Asia. Even the rather staid and conservative scientific digest that I dug all of this out of admits this really looks like a, a evidence of genetic contact, genetic connection between ancient America and Europe. So if anyone suggests to you that the idea of ancient Caucasoids is, is you know, pseudoscientific, or that there's nothing to back it up, or that it's just the figment of some evil racist who wants to bash on Indians, that's manifestly not the case. There is a considerable body of evidence and a presumably growing body of evidence that there is an ancient connection between Europe and America. And this can be backed up with any of a number of different reasoned, scientific, dispassionate arguments. Now, the kind of world I want to see is a world where the Indians are free to be Indians, where I am free to be a person of European descent and to take pride in that and to honor that and to honor my ancestors. And I fully intend to respect their rights, but I certainly expect the same in return. The government, of course, doesn't really see it that way. The Indians, although frankly I think it would be to their advantage to see it that way because they could win allies, don't see it that way because they're very defensive. I think it's really important to, to stress the spiritual aspect of this. And goodness knows, you know, I've, I've certainly gone through my own spiritual evolution. I started my life as a Catholic. Uh, my father always wanted me to be a priest. He probably would have preferred if it was within an established religion rather than, than a rather alternative one, as, which is where I've eventually ended up. And I would just like to drop a word or two about that so that you can sort of understand my perspective. I follow a religion called Alsatru, which 
is a native religion of ancient Europe. As I said before, we're all natives of somewhere. You know, we're all indigenous to somewhere. This is one of the religions that our ancestors, your ancestors and my ancestors, followed for many thousands of years until eventually they, they became converted to Christianity. It's my feeling that by honoring this ancient way, by connecting with my ancestors, that I can, I can deal with something that is natural to me and inherent to me, something which is really a part of me, because to me, there's no separation between biology and spirituality. You know, I am connected to my ancestors in a way that truly matters. It's not about culture. It's not a contract between myself and the holy powers. It's something that is innate. My ancestors are a part of my very blood, my bone, my brain, my soul, my spirit. I am their latest representative in this time and place. As such, I have a duty to all of those who have gone before me. Have you ever thought that if even one of your ancestors, if even one of your ancestors had dropped the ball genetically, if they had died before reproducing, that chain would have been broken and you wouldn't be here. Our debt to those who have gone before us, and I think this really transcends you know, whether one is also true or whether one is Christian or whether one is atheist or agnostic. Our, our tie to those ancestors is something that must be honored. As must our tie to those yet to come and our responsibility that we have to them, which is comparable to that which our ancestors had for us. Now within Alsatru, we also feel that individuals are often reborn, that they are in effect reincarnated. However, what we do not believe is that you're going to wake up in your next lifetime as a, as a Tibetan or something of the sort. And that's not a slam on the Tibetans, you know. I've, I've worked with Tibetans and I like the Tibetans, but they're not my brothers and sisters, they're not my folk. I respect them, I admire them, I hope they get their country back. <laughs> but they're going to have to quit being so darn compassionate if they're going to do it. <laughs> um, we feel that, that one is reborn essentially into one's line. And so that in a sense we are our own ancestors. We are, we're here again, carrying out our struggles, because we do believe that life is a struggle here in this plane. And sometimes that struggle is with Indians. Sometimes it's with anti-Nazis, <laughs> so-called, who are remarkably fascistic in their methods. And sometimes, in fact, most frequently, the struggle is with ourselves. So that's sort of my perspective. It's my motivation on this. Well, one might very well say, Steve, you know, this is all very interesting from the, the archaeological standpoint, and, you know, anthropology is all very cool, but, uh, you know, what, what's this really all about? You know, what, who cares? What's the impact of this? What, what is Kennewick Man trying to say? Our view all along has run something like this. 
First of all, if it turns out through testing that Kennewick man is actually more related to the Umatilla and the related tribes than he is to us, we will gladly relinquish all claim. Now in my gut, I feel very strongly that is not the case. But I also know that if no one does any testing, we're never going to know. There's sort of a catch-22 involved in this in a way, you know. The Indians say, well, he's our ancestor and we claim him and no, you can't do any tests. Well, of course, our perspective is if he's our ancestor, he should be with us, but we have to test in order to find out if that's the case. Now, the law which sort of regulates these affairs is a, a monstrosity called NAGPRA. It was passed in about 1990. It's something like the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, ad nauseum, ad infinitum. Mm -hmm. NAGPRA was written on the assumption that any remains found in America prior to the, quote, European explorers, and by that I think they probably mean Columbus, is by definition Native American. And by that, they completely disregard culture. They don't care what his culture was. They don't care what his biology, what his ancestry, what his actual physical connections as a human being were. In theory, he could have been a Norwegian who showed up here before Columbus and by golly, he's a Native American. Here, take him away and bury him, guys. And my argument is that that is bad science. It's bad science because it doesn't realize, it doesn't recognize the possible existence of other peoples here before the Indians, which there is, a, as I say, obviously a growing body of evidence that that may be the case. So we feel that NAGPRA is, on the face of it, discriminatory, and racist legislation. It is racist, after all, racism does run two directions. It is racist because it is, by its very nature, prejudicial against people of European descent. I have no problem with Indians having access to their dead. I respect that right. But I insist that the same right be given to those of us who are of European ancestry, of European descent. Now, I, I think that Kennewick Man has, has things to tell us. And I've already indicated to you that my approach is basically spiritual and not political. And I, most, I'm, I just am not a materialist. You know, I, you know with, with all due respect to those of you who think that the universe is made up of mindless atoms and endless combinations, my, my own feeling is that there is more to it than that. I personally, in my very guts, I cannot buy materialism. And I think, I don't think, I feel that Kennewick Man has a story to tell. His appearance here is not a random accident of erosion and of college guys trying to sneak in to see the hydroplane races. I note that in the same time frame that Kennewick Man emerged, we have Cheddar Man. Cheddar Man from Wales. Cheddar Man found in a cave in Wales, actually found some while back, but only DNA tested within the last couple of years, since all of this is broken. As it turned out, Cheddar Man, 
through DNA testing, has a direct descendant. A school teacher in a village found a quarter of a mile away from the cave. Now this is, to me, a powerful message about ancestry. It's a powerful message about kinship. It's a powerful message about blood transcending time. And I, to me, it is a, shall we say, a highly synchronistic event that this should emerge juxtaposed in time to the Kennewick Man Affair. Also, we have in the same general time frame, the, at least the public um, revelations concerning the Tarim Basin mummies found in what the Chinese insist is uh, Xinjiang province and in which the people who live there will tell you is East Turkestan. Back to that question of self-determination again. Uh, these are mummies found in the numbers of hundreds that are not merely somewhat Caucasoid. They are not politely Caucasoid. They are blatantly, boldly, shamelessly Caucasians. In fact, these are just plain white guys. Now, 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 the Chinese are not very fond of talking about this, but the Terran Basin mummies, just to fill you in quickly for any of you, I imagine 99% of you have followed this, but if you haven't, for one thing, they're blonde, usually a good giveaway. I think this was pre-peroxide, um, pre-Hollywood for that matter. Uh, B, they, uh, they, they have all the skeletal characteristics that we have. C, their weaving uh, techniques are have been described in the professional literature as the farthest advance to the east of typical European weaving styles. These are our people. These are definitely us. These are Indo-Europeans wandering out of that ancient heartland wherever it may have been. Now they don't go back as far as Kennewick Man, but they go halfway or more back. And to me that's another message. It's a message that our people, to be honest, probably all people, are mobile. You know, human beings are not planted with their feet stuck in the concrete. You know, they move around. And it's true that ancient man didn't have jet planes. But he just took a little longer. I mean, you know, people got around in the old times. So that's a message to me that, that our particular people, our particular branch of the human race, was doing a lot of moving around. And in fact, over into Asia, which is one of the possible entry points of these, these ancient Caucasoids into, onto the North American continent. There is, in fact, a couple of possible options of how this individual got here. One possibility, which, uh, which scientists were originally talking about quite a lot, is essentially that if, if one visualizes here, you know, a, a map of the Eurasian continent, and we realize that once one gets essentially onto the East German plains, one has a free run almost with a few speed bumps in the way, a few mountains, one thing or another, but essentially one has got a clear run all the way across to sort of the, the position adjacent to the, the, the Bering Land Bridge. It's been hypothesized, and not by people whose primary occupation was, you know, handing out political tracts, that really it's entirely possible that a Europid-type population could have occupied this entire band across the northern part of Eurasia. 
In fact, there, there's evidence uh, indicating that the Manchurians may have been connected with, with this population and so forth and so forth. You know, one could theorize on this endlessly. So it's quite possible that our people came in that direction. <coughs> Another possibility, and one which seems to perhaps be backed up by the similarity between Salutria and Clovis, is that these individuals came across what some scientists are now calling the Atlantic Crescent. And that, of course, is from the British Isles, Iceland, Greenland, on over to North America. And that during the Ice Age, the, for one thing, the sea level would have been lower, more of this would have been solid land, and what wasn't solid land could well have been solid ice. And so that uh, a highly adapted culture, or a maritime culture, which these people could well have been, could have made that, the trek that direction. Or perhaps they came both ways. You know, they, they, we don't really know a lot about what happened in, in ancient prehistory. But there are, in fact, different ways that Kennewick man and his, his kinsmen could have gotten here. Now, I think that Kennewick man needs to tell this story. And I, I think that he has two ways of doing that. And one way that Kennewick man tells us uh, his story is through science. That's why our organization has maintained from the very beginning that, uh, that in fact, Science should have a chance to study it. We don't see that as disrespectful. We don't see that as, uh, as sacrilegious. We see that as a cultural expression that traditionally we have excelled at and which we think is one way by which this man can tell his saga. And then there are other ways, more intuitive ways, uh, ways, that, ways of the spirit, ways of the heart. And I think that this too is something that we shall have to look at and just see how we feel about it as time goes by. It's difficult sometimes to make that connection, that ancestral link back, to tune into these realities. But I think that this is something that, that one, or many, could profitably do. I think that Kennewick Man is a reminder to us that we were here before. And the evidence, such as it is, indicates that Kennewick man and his people were forcibly displaced. The projectile point found in his pelvis was of a type that we know is associated with the people we think of as American Indians. And Kennewick man's representatives were not to be seen here again until the coming of the Europeans much later in time. It appears that Kennewick man's people were genocided, exterminated. In fact, the Paiutes of my neighboring state of Nevada uh, have a legend about how they destroyed, how they killed the last of the red-haired giants by herding them into a cave and suffocating them and killing any who ran out and just smothering the ones who stayed in. And this is part of their oral tradition, which science is not looking at very closely. I have been to that cave, and strange things have happened there, but that's, that's a story perhaps for another day. I've been to that cave, and to me it is a shrine, and it is a constant reminder that, as the animal rights people are fond of telling us, and truthfully, extinction is forever. I think that Kennewick man has come back to remind us that our position on this continent is vulnerable.
But unless we sink our roots deep into this soil, we will be displaced. What happened to his people can happen to our people. And I'm telling you now that I, for one, am not in a mood to permit it. I have... Misplaced guilt is too heavy a rucksack to carry about. I know in my heart that I have never knowingly mistreated anyone because of their race, their religion, their background, or their culture. They can stand outside and they can talk about racists. I know in my heart what I am. And I know that I don't meet their criteria. Well, maybe I meet their criterion, but you know, gods know what that is. Ah, a white guy, he must be a racist. But I know that once one turns their back on that word, once one ceases to be intimidated, they lose their power. And at that point, we simply go about our business of being honorable but insistent people who demand the same things for our people that all other groups demand and get. And that is a right to existence, a right to self-determination, a right to recognition as a people with a place in the sun. And that, my friends, is not negotiable. It's not something to discuss. It's not something to be pondered over. It is not something to be apologized for. It is something that we simply must take. I started these remarks by, by indicating that none of us really know, you know what, what our lives will be when it's all summed up. We all do our best, and you know, only time will tell what our impact on this world will have been. But I know this. I know that Kennewick Mann is an individual who made a difference. Probably he was not aware of the immense struggle, the immense scenario in which he was playing a part. Then again, maybe he was wiser than we think. But I do know that he has made a difference, particularly if we let him make a difference, if we don't let him down. This scenario is one that has been played out for thousands of years. In it, one side or the other strives for ascendancy. It is not my point here to say that one group is bad and one group is good, because, you know, one thing about those 50 years that Paul and I have accumulated is you realize that life is just not very simple. But the basics are still there. We have a responsibility to Kennewick Man. We have a responsibility to each and every one of those ancestors of ours. That long line stretching in back of us, unseen. And we have an obligation, a duty, 
to each and every one of our descendants who will be here behind us and who will have to live in the kind of world we leave them. I say that we must leave them a world in which our people have a place of honor, where we are recognized as, in fact, an indigenous people, a world where it is understood that our ancient roots on this continent give us position as good as or better than any, one that is not a settler mentality, that we are not newcomers, that we are not interlopers, that we are not evil conquering Europeans, but that in fact we have ancient, ancient roots here that give us a right to say, we too are native peoples. We too are first peoples. We too are indigenous to this soil. We have our roots here. We will not surrender. We will not be swept from this place. But we will instead sink those roots, deepen those roots, not be transient, but instead truly inhabit this place. Well, we know, we know that Kennewick Man is an individual, one human being, one human being battered in body, wounded in body, who died ultimately because of the depredations of his foe. But we know that he made a difference despite the 9,300 years between his time and ours. It then devolves upon us. What will we do? What will be our response to the challenges that face us? Will we walk away from this meeting tonight and say, well, that's all very nice, but hey, my grandkids can work it out? I'm hoping that you won't do that. I'm trusting that you won't do that. And I urge you, each and every one of you, in the way that works for you, the way that speaks to your soul, the way that speaks to your spirit, I urge you to support those who are striving to protect our people, to protect our heritage, those who are trying to ensure that there is a place not just for you and me, not just for our children, not just for our grandchildren, but for those to come so that our descendants will be mining the asteroids and colonizing the galaxy. We must take our place. We must take it proudly. And to do that, it means that every single one of us must apply our wit, our will, our hearts, and our soul to this purpose. Thank you.